And uh, I saw that it was in your worship guide, so you can find it there, but if you'd like to see it in the uh, Bible, it's the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you go to Matthew and go back one, Malachi, go back another one, you'll find Zechariah chapter 3. Well, you'll find Zechariah, then you can find chapter 3. Uh, let me tell you why I'm here this morning. And I want you to know that I'm delighted to be here this morning. I've been looking forward to this ever since Sean and I first talked about it. I'm here this morning because my good friend Sean DeMars asked me to be here this morning, and I love your pastor, Sean DeMars, and his wife, Amber. Uh, I met them uh, years ago, but it was not too long before they got on a plane and went to Peru, and I thought that was the bravest thing that I've seen two people do uh, that I personally knew. And I've, I still think that way of them. Love them. I love their zeal for God and for His kingdom, for His church, their compassion and care for God's people, uh, the way they honor His word and what it means to hold the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow Christ, to be known as, as one of His disciples. And I count you all as a very blessed people to uh, sit under Sean's pastoral ministry. So if Sean ever gets hit by a meteor or a milk truck, I want you to come to Decatur Prez. But until that happens, uh, it, it, this, is a, this is a blessed place for you and your family to learn how to, how to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so happy for you. All right, now that I've told you why I'm here this morning, let me suggest to you why I think you're here this morning. And I think this suggestion that I'm about to make is both uh, true to the facts and also uh, quite legitimate. I think you are here this morning because you want something more out of your life than what you currently have. Amen. That's why I think you're here this morning. Thank you. Uh, you want something more out of life, something more beautiful out of life than what you currently have. But it's not just you. Look around you. You see all these other people around us this morning? That's why they are here this morning as well. Because we all have this deep restlessness, this deep desire in every human heart for something more beautiful than what we currently possess. And behind all of our posturing with each other, behind all of our evasive humor with each other, behind all of our cozy, well-guarded traditions that we put in place with each other, uh, behind all of our role-playing that we do with each other, uh, that is what's going on. In every single human heart, there's this deep restlessness for a life made new, a life remade. And that's why I'm here this morning, and that's why you are here this morning, and it's a completely safe guess. That's also why every other person in the room is here this morning. So, now let me ask a question, having suggested why I think we're all here this morning. What do you think is going to give you this new life for which you are hungering? This life remade for which you are thirsting, where do you think it's going to come from? You think this, this new life is going to come from our common household idols of our culture? Is new life going to come to you with more sports victories? Is new life going to come to you if more money comes flowing into your life? Is this new life going to come to you uh, if you are wearing new clothes or if you uh, 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 have more accomplishments at work? Or is new life going to come to you because of your children? And children, let's draw you into this conversation as well. Uh, you children, I see uh, several of you out there. Uh, you're hungering for this new life as well. That's why you love stories so much, by the way. 
And, uh, and you think the next new toy that you get is going to give you this new life? No, it's not. And we all know that it's not. All of these things in which we are tempted to try to find this new and beautiful life for which we are hungering, all of these things will eventually leave us frustrated. One way or another, even the absolutely greatest things that this world has to offer you, it will leave you empty and frustrated eventually, one way or another, if for no other reason than simply because it doesn't last. Even what my wife and I have so much loved about this world is, is God's gift of having babies and raising children. Uh, this summer, we had, we had uh, eight children in our home at one point this summer. Uh, it, was, it was beautiful. It was glorious. And yet, even that doesn't fill you, if for no other reason, because it doesn't last. There's one thing that we've noticed is that children grow up, and they leave. And as much fun as it was when they were with you, it can't fill you now because we don't see them that much. None of these things can fill us. Because what you and I are actually hungering for, what we are actually thirsting and longing for, is Jesus. The promise of his coming and the promise that in coming he has filled, uh, or in, in his coming he has, he has come and entered into the sin and the slavery of our fallenness and of our sin and of our rebellion, of our shame, of our sickness, and he has entered into it in order to forgive it and to heal it and to make all things new. That promise is why you and I are in this room this morning. You did not come to church this morning trying to fill this hole that you find in your heart, trying to fill it with more junk. That's not why you're here this morning. You came to church this morning gesturing towards this new world, this new world of hope and love and beauty and generosity and grace and mercy and righteousness and peace. And that new world has come to you. It has come to you in Jesus Christ. Now, that new world is not here in its fullness, but it was inaugurated in the first coming of Jesus Christ, and that new world is going to come in all of its glorious fullness one day when Jesus returns. But we are all here this morning for Jesus. And we're going to find him this morning in our text. Zechariah chapter 3. Let me ask that you... Uh, uh, Sean, secret, nobody else is listening. Do you all stand when you read the scripture? No, if you don't, then nope, I'm not, I'm not bringing... I just didn't want to overlook it if you all did. <laughs> Uh, uh, not Sean, Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Let me read the word of God with you this morning. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Let us pray. O oh Lord, would you sweep away the refuge of lies that our idolatrous hearts so often seek shelter in? 
And this morning, would you open our eyes to the overwhelming meaning of the righteousness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ more and more fully. We ask this in his name. Amen. Do you love a good uh, courtroom drama kind of movie? You know what I'm talking about? These movies that a great deal of them take place inside the courtroom. I love courtroom drama kind of movies. Let me mention a few of my favorites. There's uh, A Few Good Men. You remember the great line? You can't handle the truth. And uh, Men of Honor, another great line that my children hear from me a lot. Uh, Cookie, report to this line. I don't know. You'd have to see the movie to understand that. Uh, There's another great courtroom drama movie, uh, 12 Angry Men. You may not know this one. It's really old, actually. It's a black and white movie. It's 93 minutes of real time. The camera never stops rolling. It's 93 minutes of real time movie making uh, inside of a jury room. And there's this one juror who is trying to convince 11 other jurors Uh, all of whom have vastly different personalities, that the defendant out there is innocent. He's the only one that thinks he's not guilty. He's got to convince all other 11. Twelve Angry Men, amazing movie. Uh, There's uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, has as its main character, one of its main characters, my favorite uh, character from all of fiction, Atticus Finch. In fact, my wife wanted to name one of my children Atticus. I did not let her do so. But uh, that was her intention. Um, There's Amistad, great courtroom drama has one of the most powerful gospel presentations I've ever seen in cinema. Uh, there's uh, My Cousin Vinny, which probably should not be mentioned right here. Okay, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and basically any of the 100 uh, books that John Grisham has written that have been turned into movies. But these can be some of the most dramatic films you will ever see. Do you ever, in those kind of films, do you ever not hold your breath in that moment when the jury comes back into the courtroom and the judge asks, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, do you have your verdict? I mean, that's just a pregnant moment of great drama. But our text this morning takes us to the most dramatic courtroom drama that you will ever see, that you will ever hear. Now, let me just give you a quick word of introduction before we jump in. Zechariah, the writer, he's a prophet, he's a priest, uh, and he begins his book here with a series of eight visions. The vision that we just read is vision number four of the eight. And in this vision, the high priest of Israel, his name is Joshua. Now, this is not the Joshua that was the assistant to Moses and took God's people into the promised land. That was centuries before this Joshua. But the high priest of Israel, Joshua, is standing in the courtroom of heaven, and he is representing both himself and all the people of God because he's their high priest. He represents all the people of God here as well. And he is on trial for his life and the life of everyone whom he represents. If you or John Grisham can come up with a more dramatic courtroom drama than that, I will be very impressed. Now, to understand any courtroom drama, you first have to be aware of, you have to acknowledge and appreciate who all the different characters are. So let me introduce us to the characters in our vision here. In this vision, we have Joshua, the high priest. We already spoke about him. We have Satan. Or to be more accurate to the Hebrew, the Satan, the accuser. Uh, He is, of course, acting the part of the prosecutor. And he is here accusing the high priest of Israel. Again, Satan appearing in the courtroom of heaven, accusing the high priest who represents all of God's people. The most dramatic courtroom drama you will ever find, which bears repeating even with the built-in redundancy of me using the word drama twice when I keep saying that. But uh, you also have the angel of the Lord. 
The angel of the Lord is here. Now, I don't have time to fully defend this, but who is this angel of the Lord? He is the eternally existing second person of the forever trinity. This is the Son of God. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity. And he's appearing here in the Bible before his advent, before his incarnation. You see the angel of the Lord showing up several times in the Old Testament. And sometimes when he shows up, he accepts worship from people. And whenever you see the angel of the Lord accepting worship from people, that should spark a big question. Who is this accepting worship from human beings? Because he was just a normal angel, if he was a normal good angel, he would not accept worship from people. You see that in the Bible. When an angel appears before people, he's so awesome. People just fall down on their faces. They start worshiping him, and the good angels pick them all up and say, What are you doing? I'm a creature of God like you are. Don't worship me. We worship God together. So he's not a good angel, a normal good angel. He's also obviously not a bad angel. He's the angel of the Lord who honors the Lord. So who is he? He's the eternal Son of God appearing mysteriously in the Bible before you get to the New Testament. This is the one who walked in the Garden of Eden with our first parents. This is the one who had a meal with Abram and Sarah on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah to see if the, if the outcry that had come up to him about Sodom and Gomorrah, if, if their sins and evil and wickedness was really that bad. This is the one who wrestled with Jacob and renamed him Israel. This is the one who appeared to Joshua on the night before they attacked Jericho. Though they didn't really attack Jericho, but, but he appeared to Joshua that night before. This is the one who came and announced the birth of Samson, who would begin to save the people of God from the hand of the Philistines. This is the eternal Son of God. It's Jesus, the angel, that word means messenger, the messenger of the Lord and then finally, by way of introducing the people we find here, there's these others who are standing around. They are normal angels, officers of the court, ready to do God's bidding. And the vision begins in the middle of all the action. Look at verse 1. The Satan, the adversary, has been accusing the high priest. And here's what you must understand. The high priest Joshua is a sinner, which means that all these accusations hit the mark. This is all true. It's completely true what the adversary, what the, the Satan, what the prosecuting attorney is saying. It's all accurate and true and real. Verse 3, Joshua was standing there. Notice how he's standing. Clothed in filthy garments. Verse 4 makes it clear that these filthy garments represent his iniquity, his sins, his guilt, his shame, his many transgressions, which the adversary has been enumerating and clarifying and expanding and discussing and interpreting for the court. Do you feel this tension? Can you put yourself here? Joshua, the high priest, his sins are real, his sins are clear, his sins are obvious. The people of God whom he represents, they're all sinners as well. Nobody can argue. There's no denials that Joshua makes. There's no excuses he makes because there are no excuses he can make. One day we're all going to stand before the court of heaven and there will be no excuses we can make for ourselves. It just happened in my church family last night. Nori Adams just died last night. And she's, she stood before the Lord in the courtroom of heaven. One day this is going to happen to all of us. And there's nothing you can do to help yourself. You are, in fact, a sinner. Do you feel that tension? 
If you can't feel that tension, you're either a perfect Christian, which is not true, (laughs) or you've got a long habit of spiritually deceiving yourself. Feel this tension. But then something shocking happens. I told you, this is the most dramatic courtroom drama ever. Look at what happens. The adversary, rather than Joshua, the high priest of Israel, who stands there dressed all in the robes of his guilt, the adversary is rebuked. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Now we have to ask the question here. Why would the adversary be rebuked for simply stating what is true and what is obvious? If he's mentioning all of Joshua's sins, and if Joshua's sins are real, why does the Lord rebuke the adversary rather than Joshua? The answer is at the end of verse 2. Look at the end of verse 2. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Yes. Joshua's sins are real, and Joshua's sins are obvious, and there's nothing he can say about them, but he is a stick. It's like a stick that someone has pulled out of the fire, the fire that would have absolutely consumed that stick. But Jesus has rescued him. Jesus pulls him out of hell itself. Jesus saves him. And then, not only is he rescued from the fire, but see what happens next. Then the dirty, filthy, vile, obscene, offensive garments of his guilt and iniquity, they're taken away. Look at verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And then in verse 5, we read he even gets a, a clean turban. So now his purification is complete from head to toe. And then we read this, And the angel of the Lord was standing by. That is the most dramatic courtroom drama you will ever encounter. What does this drama mean? What does it mean? Do you know the voice of this adversary? You know the voice of this accuser? He is real. He delights to accuse the people of God. It's all over the Bible. Read Job 1 and 2. He's accusing the people of God. Here in Zechariah 3, he's accusing the people of God. Revelation 12, he's accusing the people of God. This is what he does throughout all of history. He's always accusing the people of God day and night, the Bible says. And his accusations, if you're familiar with his voice, are so subtle sometimes, but they are so powerful. In my head, they sometimes come across something like this. How dare you? How dare you think that you can defile the courts of the living God with your presence? Who do you think you are that God would accept into his love and protection a vile sinner like you? You are so unfit, so unworthy to appear before God. There is nothing in your faithless heart that is by itself truly pleasing to God, even your so-called service to God, you know in your heart it's full of lameness. It's full of corruption. 
It's full of pollution with sin. You have no grounds in yourself to hope for God's mercy. So why don't you just give up that hope? Why don't you just enjoy your sin? You seem to be able to enjoy sin happily. You don't seem to be able to enjoy God's holiness very long at all without sinning. Why don't you just give up on this hope in God's mercy and just enjoy your sin in this life? You acquainted with a voice like that? That voice is real. It accuses us day and night. The next time you hear that voice, if you are a believer, I encourage you to take that voice right here to Zechariah chapter 3. And in Zechariah 3, you remind your adversary that, yes, your sin, your guilt, your iniquity, it's all real, it's all obvious, it's all clear. Nobody is arguing that it's not. But you remind him that that is no reason for you not to trust in God's mercy. That is no reason to distrust the grace of the living God. You remind him that the Lord has never received you because of your righteousness. God has always received you because of the righteousness of another. That's the only reason God has ever received you. The Bible says right here, God chose Jerusalem in spite of her sin. And if you are a believer, God chose you for the very same, in the very same way, in spite of your sin. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Is not this a brand, a soul freed from sin and death? Listen to Revelation chapter 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come and the accuser of our brothers, the adversary, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. God accepted Joshua. And he accepted all the people of God whom Joshua represented as their high priest. He accepted Joshua and, God and his people by sheer grace. Because he had removed from Joshua's life and the life of God's people, he removed everything that offended his holiness. He had removed it all from his sight. Jesus removed it. And he removed it by dying for it. By absorbing it upon himself and paying the penalty. Dying for it. Fully paying for it on the cross. And then, keep looking at this drama. Most dramatic courtroom drama ever. Then, Joshua was dressed in the righteousness of his Savior. Now, in the context of Zechariah, I encourage you, if you've got time today, read the whole of Zechariah and put what we're talking about right now in its place within this prophecy. But in, in the whole book, this passage is meant to give you assurance from God. Assurance, from, assurance to a sinful and guilty people. In fact, the original audience, this is what's going on, they were so sinful, so guilty, so full of iniquity that God had recently in, in history kicked them out of the promised land that he, sent, that he gave them. He gave them this promised land, but they had filled it with their sin and with their guilt and with their iniquity so much that he had kicked them out and sent them into a miserable exile into a pagan land far away. But now in this vision, he's assuring them that his covenant, the covenant that God makes with sinners who repent and believe, it still stands, even in spite of the exile, even in spite of severe discipline in our lives. That covenant still stands. To those who repent, 
If you're reading Zechariah, pay close attention to the very first chapter, to the first six verses of chapter 1. This, this, all these visions, they build on themselves, they build on one another. But it all begins with repentance, return to God. Return to God. And then trust Jesus. And your sins will be put away. God will freely accept you into his presence. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus himself. That idea, remember this new vestments, these new garments were put on Joshua. Righteous garments. That idea of being clothed in a righteousness that is not our own, that is a picture that the Bible is presenting to us all the time when it's trying to help us understand what salvation means. All the time. Let me give you a brief tour. That, that in your sin, in your self-righteousness, polluted garments, filthy, vile garments. And we need to have those taken off. And somebody must put on us this wholesome, pure, righteous garment of Christ. Let me kind of draw the picture for you through the scripture. Isaiah 64. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even your most righteous deed, it's a polluted garment. Job 29. I put on righteousness. And it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Psalm 132. Let your priest, like Joshua, let your priest be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns himself with her jewels. That's the picture the Bible gives us. But to further root it in your mind, I want you to understand that the Bible also shows us the opposite picture. Jesus, our Lord Jesus, told a parable one time. It's a parable that took place at a wedding feast. Now you need to know that in the Bible, a wedding is a picture of, of God's salvation. It's a picture of salvation. And in this wedding feast, someone tried to be a part of the feast who was not wearing a wedding garment. You understand what that means? Someone's trying to be a part of salvation, but they are not wearing the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a robe, as a garment. But they're trying to be a part of salvation. This is what Jesus said. When the king, when the king came in to look at the guests in the wedding feast, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless and the king said to the attendants, to the angels who are standing by, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the Bible it matters a great deal what kind of garment you are wearing in God's eyes. And then of course just to round out the picture you have Revelation 19. Which, which is where the true church, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ is described as God sees her from heaven. Let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 
Of course, you have so many other passages of the Bible that give themselves to this. Our sister over here read the parable of the prodigal son earlier. Remember when the son returns to his father? He's repenting. He returns. What does the father say? Get those filthy garments off my boy and put on him the best robe and the best ring and the best shoes and we shall begin the feast. That's the picture of salvation. Now this idea of being clothed in a righteousness, not your own. It has been represented countless times in the hymnody that the church has sung and written throughout the ages. Let me read you some. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds, even if this world does catch on fire, midst flaming world, in these arrayed in the righteousness of Jesus, in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these garments I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice, now let thy ransomed ones rejoice. Their beauty this, their glorious dress, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Another one. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found clothed. Here's the idea. Clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? John Wesley, a pastor from ages back in the church, uh, he actually is one of the, he's the guy who translated one of those hymns I just read back in the 1700s. John Wesley was always mindful his entire life long of a very traumatic night that he endured when he was a six-year-old boy. Imagine this. He's six years old. He wakes up in the middle of the night. His entire house is on fire. It's engulfed in fire. And he's on the second floor. And the entire house is entirely engulfed in fire. Everyone else in the family had been dragged out of the house. But somehow he had been forgotten or overlooked in the fear and the confusion and the smoke. He was child number 15 of 19 children in the family. So... And don't judge them too harshly. But, uh, but he was overlooked, and he wakes up in his bed, and he's on the second floor, and the steps are aflame, and he can't get out. At the very last moment, right before the roof crashed in, one man stood on top of a, these neighbors. One man stood on top of the shoulders of another man, reached up into that window, that second floor window, and plucked John Wesley, six-year-old John Wesley, out of that house right before the roof crashed on the place where he had been standing. He was a brand plucked from the fire. Wesley, in his preaching, would, would frequently refer back to that story. He told the story a lot. And one day an artist drew that picture for him of six-year-old John Wesley being plucked out of the... You can find this picture online being plucked out of the window right before the whole house collapses in flames. And Wesley kept that picture with him the rest of his life. And underneath that picture, he wrote this verse, Zechariah 3, a brand plucked from the fire. 
Are you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Has Jesus Christ plucked you out of the flames of hell? If not, know that the scripture says it is appointed to every man, woman, and child once to die and after that to face judgment. My friend Nori faced it last night. Don't stand before the court of heaven on that day dressed in the robes of your self-righteousness because that is the robe of guilt and sin. Polluted garments. If so, then rejoice and be refreshed in this assurance from God. As the hymn said earlier, let the dead now hear thy voice and let the ransomed ones rejoice. Rejoice in this assurance that God gives to a real Sinful people, a legitimately sinful people, hardcore, kick them out of the promised land, sinful people, rejoice in God's forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is one of the central blessings of the Christian, that you know that your entire history of sin and your present life of sin and your future life of sin has been removed through the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe and carry that good news with you wherever you go. The accuser of God's people has been thrown down. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for salvation. Salvation only by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. In spite of all of our sins, in spite of all of our many demerits, in spite of our great pollution that we have created in our life, polluting it with sin, Lord, Jesus Christ is our only hope for a good outcome on the day when we stand before the judgment seat. We will stand there as sticks saved from the fire, and he will command his angels to clothe us in the pure vestments of his own righteousness, fully absolved from sin and fear and guilt and shame. May our hope be built on nothing less, and may we live every day in the assurance that you have given to a repenting and believing people. Amen.